commercial property with Rethink Investing. Australia's largest and most comprehensive podcast covering all things commercial investing. Good everyone, how you going? Phil Tarrant here, co-host of Inside Commercial Property with Rethink Investing, where we break down this asset class that is commercial property. You maybe think that commercial property doesn't really exist in this market because every single headline is focused on auction clearance rates in a residential properties which off the charts i was flicking through most recent ones from the weekend and you had 90 plus percent auction rates in some capital cities so blown away it goes to show how hot that resi property market is but don't get carried away and fixated on resi property as the only asset class when it comes to property there is also commercial hence the reason why we've created this podcast to help educate australian property investors of the opportunities that exist within commercial property. I was only chatting with a buyer's agent yesterday, uh, having a good chinwag about the property market and commercial come clearly on the radar. I was uh, over in um, a bit of a backstory, over in Double Bay, and um, I wandered the streets for a little while prior to meeting with this person, and uh, I was blown away by how many empty shops there were at a high street level and what was a pretty vibrant area. A lot of clothing shops, a lot of retail outlets, I think, have just shut up shops. So, a lot of people have framed commercial property in that way, but commercial property is more than just retail, a lot more than office market. And uh, today we're going to have a good chat about how this is shaping up as an asset class moving forward. Joining me is the brains of this outfit, Scott O'Neill, Rethink Investing. He's the director there, Mr. Commercial Property. Oh, there you go. I just called it. <laughs> I framed it for you. You live out that way, right, in the eastern suburbs? Yeah, yeah, live that way. And uh, yeah, look, you're right. There is definitely a bit of retail vacancy out there and yeah. it's because traffic is down there was uh you know trade hours were restricted and forced closures all that kind of stuff did hurt the normally fairly marginal business model of a retail shop mm. so any decline in activity is going to hit those guys quite hard personally i hadn't been out there since oh, maybe once but like you know on the ground and they call it ground truth right like you can read anything in the papers and you look at residential price growth in that area is probably off the charts right there's people building stuff left right and center but i actually found it a little bit depressive just wandering the streets because at least 40 percent i think of shops on the high street they come remember the name what you got bay road links into um whatever the main drag is down there through uh, double bay that leads up to the sheaf hotel yeah it was like a bit of a ghost town mate yeah the looked- ladies at lunch weren't even out <laughs> what day was it? Monday. Monday. Yeah. 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 A bit quieter on a Monday. But it look, is. you're right. It's just, I never really understood that business model to invest in as well because there's never much foot traffic there. You can buy most of their products online as well, you know, particularly all those fashion ones. So it's a lot of ladies' boutiques, right? And shoe shops. A lot of and hobby sort of businesses, stuff. too. Yeah. You know, like there's obviously a lot of wealth there. And, you know, I'm generalizing horribly here, but obviously a lot of those businesses are, are done out of a hobby because yeah. they've made it and it's something to do. I don't know if you've ever been into the shops, but yeah, look, there's the ones that are sort of a less high-end fashion tend to be still going well. Like I was in Double Bay on Friday at the back of that kind of uh, Woolworths area and you couldn't get a seat at the cafe. Yeah. Uh, it was the busiest I've ever seen it. So the food ones are killing it. There was a line for the sushi about 20 metres long just to get in there. And that was Friday at 1pm. And, you know, I guess there's different business models that are doing well and there is probably an oversupply. Yeah, it's not what I saw, maybe because it was Monday, but that's sort of, we're talking about the other side of the road here. So you're on the- On the Woolworth side. On the Woolworth side, yeah. Yes, on the other side of the road, on the the north side of New South Head Road. New South Head Road? Yeah, anyway. It was really depressed. Like all those little sort of 
bars and wine bars and coffee shops and, you know, the hotel, the the pub had a few punters in there, but the rest of it was, was really depressing. It got me thinking about commercial property. It's very visible if certain asset classes in commercial aren't performing, and I saw it there firsthand, and I actually felt quite saddened by it and depressed. The Tropicana Centre, still pretty vibrant. That's full. Great butchers in there, by the way. Yeah. But it was just really depressed. It got me thinking about, you know, commercial property as an asset class and sort of connected in, obviously, with this particular podcast because a lot of mum and dad investors would own that real estate. Now, a lot of it is now resi on top retail at the bottom, which is a pretty good product. And there's quite a lot of residential building there as well, quite a lot of refurbishments happening. So I think it will bounce back into a bit of a, a boom period for that area. But that is a microcosm of yeah. a quite an affluent. And it's good you bring that up because I've never, as a company, we've never chased that high-end retail and mixed use as well. Like when you've got the unit upstairs, if, if you get it in the right area, great. But you know, like say Mossman, for instance, there's a lot of vacancy there because there's just a lot of shops along a highway. Mm. And I know we brought up the Parramatta Road business model. You know, why would you want to uh, buy an Ugg boot store on a highway? Like, how's there money in that for the business? Like, I just don't see it. So you've got to be careful with commercial. If you go into what you think you're familiar with, you might make a big mistake. And I think buying a, a super low yielding asset in an affluent suburb that is just purely retail doesn't have much upside. It doesn't have much rental growth opportunity because mm. they're probably already at peak levels. You're buying at a sharp yield already, so there's not much room for yield compression. Like, where do you go from there? You just hope the business stays in there. And if they don't, you're going to have to find another one. And they may be an inexperienced operator as well. So, not all commercial is equal. And that is a great example of one that I've always avoided. Yeah. And today, uh, Scott, I've dug out an article semi-recent that I want to go through because it talks a lot about these dynamics, right? It's this intersection between capital markets and funding and then sort of ground truth of how people are using commercial assets right now. But to your point, it's connected in with it around the Parramatta Road business model, which has been pretty subdued for a while. It's pretty depressive through some of those areas as you go through, you know, each of the different suburbs heading out west towards Stratfield, right, along Parramatta Road. Some areas are still vibrant. Some areas are pretty, pretty sort of depressed. But the new road has gone in, the new tunnel linking the city link with the M4. That must have decimated markets even further through those high street areas. Yes, it's the, like, businesses are there for the visibility, Mm. but the real issue is the parking. Like, I remember a month or so ago, I'd I can't remember which raid, but it was like a drum and golf. I went there to buy a new, uh, what was it, a putter or something. $15,000 <laughs> club, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. And I, I drove past and I went, all right, where do I park? You know, it was just a bit of a, a fleeting decision just yeah. to check out what they had. I had to go around the, a back street park, literally about 500 metres away. And then, you know, it took forever. And mm. I thought, you've got to be pretty keen to actually get into these shops. Like, unless you're catching public transport and get stopped right in the front. You know, there were clear ways there. It was not easy. And it was a big shop. They would have paid a lot of rent for that area. And that's the issue, parking. And um, if you've got a, a car park right at the back, you can quickly swing in. Great. But uh, most of those ones, those mixed-use ones, don't have that. Mm. And it goes to show you need to be really strategic when you're buying this. I reckon the recommendation this is for for Gladys Berejiklian, and just get one, either it's the, uh, the south side or the north side of Parramatta Road, buy up every property, knock it down, chuck some bus lanes in, you'd be doing everyone a big favour. And imagine over time, though, all those 
all those commercial properties will probably transition into residential blocks. They're going to have to, right? It's going to be just a gateway into because pretty good train lines sort of running parallel to it all. Yeah, and that's what happens once the land value grows. And I guess that's the one reason a lot of people long term hold. You're effectively land banking, and if you own enough of that land, you might have a portion of a development down the track. So it's not all bad. We give it a bad rap, but if you're looking for consistency of income. There is going to be more vacancy there, so mm. you probably won't get that consistency with that asset class. Absolutely. So these are some of the themes in this article that I've dug up, and this is from the 22nd of February, and it's an article written off the back of a conference that took place in Sydney recently in sort of mid to late February, a Property Council of Australia. They held their Outlook lunch. They had like 500 odd people there, property punters. I didn't go there myself, but I keep an eye on this sort of stuff. But this is an article which has been written up by uh, the Financial Review. And the headline here is where all the prices have gone up, where you can chase growth. So a bit of a catch-all of a lot of the themes that come out of this particular luncheon with some of the panellists on there. So I thought, Scott, we can pick this apart and give some sense to it. So this is reporting. Hey, this person has said this. So the opportunity for us is to go, okay, well, what does that mean? And information is only as good as what you choose to do with it. Information which doesn't have any use is just unnecessary information. So as you go down educating yourself around property, commercial markets in particular, every bit of information you get, you go, okay, what do I do with that information? How does that shape my perception? How can that positively enable a decision or maybe change a decision you have? So this way you've got to think. So there's a piece written by Martin Kelly. He's a reporter there at the Fin. Not that I like to sort of promote other people's journalism, <laughs> but we'll do it today. Uh, so the story goes, Scott, low rates are driving further investment into commercial property. The death of the traditional office has been overblown. Logistics remain a sure bet and workplace trends born of COVID-19 will only accelerate, according to a panel of property leaders. So we've been chatting about this stuff for a little while, right? You know, this podcast was born at essentially – Consistently, but at the worst time, probably for Australia, some say there's been an opportunity, but in many, many years that the global pandemic that is COVID-19, we created this podcast on the back of that as people started reevaluating their financial position, how it would be impacted by COVID-19 and how they could get the best bank for the buck in terms of creating wealth. One of those is commercial property. And we've had this discussion beforehand and you've seen it. A lot of people who have traditionally had their money in cash instruments have pulled it out of it because they're getting very little return on it with interest rates at the Reserve Bank level of 0.1%. doesn't make sense to have your money parked in some sort of cash product unless maybe you're offsetting a mortgage or there's some other more sophisticated financial instruments. You've seen a lot of that, haven't you? People are into commercial. Yeah, and look, I just had a chat to my broker last night actually because we're doing a DA and there was a bit of a delay and I'm like, oh, look, should I buy a commercial property? And he said, oh, I can get you an 80% loan, no recourse, 30-year term, so it's a lease stock loan. Interest rate was a bit high, but I was just like an 80% loan for commercial, 30-year term, no financials. It makes like, it's so easy to get this stuff. You know, I wouldn't use the word frightening, but it's just like if you're a good candidate, you can get the money very quickly, not much stress. If you've got more complexities or certain debt levels or lack of income outside of it, yeah, there's going to be more trouble. But it's a very easy scenario to get a loan if you're in the right spot. And that's why people are running at this stuff because you're not going to get the money in the bank. You're getting security out of this if you buy the right asset. And because you're buying such high cash flow stuff, you're making huge income just on the debt. You know, mm. So even if you went 100% debt from refinancing a house at 4% and you buy an asset at 7%, you're making 3% on the debt. Plus growth. 
leveraged. It's very good returns on money. Yeah, it is good. Hence the reason why a lot of people are attracted into commercial, which is, and we're not talking insta type stuff. We're talking inverted commas, mum and dad slash more sophisticated personal investors and sort of some smaller family officers who are looking at this to get the best bang for the buck. So this article continues. Uh, Chris Tynan, Scott, who's uh, head of real estate in Australia for the private equity giant Blackstone, said the low interest rate environment would drive further investment into commercial real estate of all persuasions. Okay, that's a quote from him. So private equity, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, essentially is just organizations, people, whatever structures, they pull their money together and they invest in stuff, a lot of it being commercial property or business. His quote continues, uh, the money that has been pumped into the economy has resulted in pretty much every fixed income product on the planet returning at best zero or if not mostly negative. That's what we just spoke about. You're not getting much bang for your buck if you're keeping your your investments in cash type products. He said, this tendency was driving prices across all risk assets as we don't really see that moderating anytime soon. That's a quote. He continues, we're not just seeing that in real estate, he said, we're seeing that in the multiples that my private equity colleagues are paying for operating businesses. So most operating businesses connected with some sort of commercial property. So they're probably getting double bang for the buck there. He continues, I think the most interesting and nuanced view is that in a world where all the prices have gone up, where can you chase growth in an inflated world? What's all this mean? Look, asset values are up. So mm. we've been seeing roughly in the last 12 months, probably 15% growth for our clients on average. So that's pretty significant for commercial. Like this is a cash flow, normally uh, branded asset class, mm. but it's more than that. It is right now we're going through yield compression, which means people are paying more and more for the same rent. So if you've got a 7% cap rate, you know, that's a 70 grand, that means you're going to pay a million dollars. But now if you're getting 70000 a year, someone might go, well, look, the return's good, the interest rate's low, I'm not going to pay a million dollars for that, I'll pay 1.2 because it's still a good return versus the interest rate. Mm. So asset values are going up quickly. And 2021 is looking even better than the last 12 months. So it's not slowing up, there's depth to the market. So a lot of people go, how long is it going to last? I'm on the coal face. So, you know, we're getting a lot of inquiries, probably about triple what we normally do right now and it's mostly because of the economy like buyers agents are in a a cyclical type industry when sentiment's up people approach us more and right now it's never been higher and that means there's just depth to the buyers so this is not going to stop tomorrow this is not going to stop in six months time or even 12 months i think there's a good window of you know i'd hate to put a, a figure on it but it seems like there's a good two to three or four years of but, you know, unless there's a big shock to the economy somewhere, mm. we're in for a, a good growth period ahead. And the only thing that'll really crush that would be something like a world war or a, like interest rates somehow sharply increase, which I can't see that happening. But we've gone through the worst with coronavirus and it didn't do much to this. Mm. And I think a lot of these markets we're in still have a lot of room to grow because they make sense cash flow wise. And then look, there's other markets that'll hit affordability glass ceilings and that you'll probably see some market start to come off. But yeah, look, it's looking pretty positive for a while. And we sort of mentioned that in our last podcast that how long can it go? People are paying, you know, you brought up a crow's nest property that was advertised for 2.1 that went for $3 million. Like people are willing to pay more. And mm. when the banks are coming to the party and they're not slowing up, this is going to keep going for a little while. It will do and, and sort of put that in parallel with how Australia has navigated uh, the COVID-19 
we're doing pretty well. There hasn't been too much community transmission for a long period of time around. There's hardly any cases in Australia now, which is great. But you're also seeing globally, Scott, uh, decrease in infection levels. And there is now this narrative around the natural cycle of this virus is now starting to peter out. And we're seeing huge drops in cases in the US. And a lot of it they're talking about now, it's just the herd immunity is coming to force. So that will do a lot in lockstep with the vaccination, which is underway to help temper some of the impacts of COVID-19. And we see now old Scotty Morrison, ScoMo's, uh, he's got the jab and you know, the vaccine's available now in Australia. So that should lend itself to those dynamics you just spoke about, you know, in, in yeah. championing and, and empowering this period of growth. Back to the article, it says, meanwhile, Mr. Tynan said Blackstone was still a big believer in the future of logistics, despite putting his $3.5 billion a milestone logistics portfolio on the market. So that's private equity people. What they do, they pump money into something for a period of time with the idea that they will sell it or realise the value in that and give the money back to those people who have put money into it originally. Uh, quote, we are continuing to buy logistics even as we've made part of our portfolio available sale and we will continue to do so. So, so what they're talking about here is that they put their business, their logistics portfolio full of businesses on the market, however, from a commercial property point of view, they're saying logistics-orientated organisations are pretty good in terms of commercial market, which we've spoken about beforehand. Yeah, and like one of the agents I was talking to the other day got approached by one of these big managed funds, mm. and they had $100 million to instantly spend cash. So this is in a southeast Queensland market, and they had a very sharp yield expectation, you know, above 5.5% net was the brief. So you know, some are selling out because that's their business model. When you sell, you get a seller's fee. You know, that's part of what fund managers do. You get an acquisitions fee, a holding fee, and a selling fee. So cycling assets is a way to boost profits. Mm. That doesn't mean they don't buy back in because they get another fee. So we're seeing a lot of that cycling of assets. Normally, it's a five to seven-year period. And the money out there with the big guys, it's never been greater. And overseas money is coming here as well. Mm. And obviously, there's foreign investment approvals needed and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, like I said, there's depth to the market. It's not just lots of mums and dads trying to get a better yield than they can get in residential. It's institutions trying to uh, park money up. Yeah, the top end of town. I guess they get the double benefit of it. So they invest in businesses in these portfolio sectors, which they can see upside growth in. But much like a McDonald's, a lot of them are also investing in the real estate where these businesses are parked, right? There you go. It's pretty smart. The PC continues. Tim Church, who is the chairman of investment banking at Morgan Stanley Australia, he's also confident the logistics sector is well set for further growth. I concurrent with the potential sale of the Milestone portfolio, which is the Blackstone one we spoke about. Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan are running an IPO process. Uh, quote, I think logistics will do extremely well. The runway is very strong for that, said Mr. Church. Meanwhile, the negativity towards office had been overblown. He told the panel, quote, are we going to lose 50% of the people out in the office? Not in my view, he said. We're going to have greater flex, but we're not going to occupy much smaller places. Some groups will, but I don't think there will be a massive reduction in demand for office space. I'm still pretty bullish. So one of the big themes from COVID-19 is the way in which Australians will work is forever changed, and therefore office investment is on the nose and you'd be mad to be investing in office real estate at the moment. Discuss. <laughs> Look, There's a, a thesis for you, mate. It is. Look, we're not huge fans of offices just because I, for my clients, like security in the short, medium, long-term income. So mm. there's not much security short-term-wise for the income. Long-term, I think there is. 
and that's backed up by the fact that you know the CBD office space is selling at record square meter rates vacant. So investors still see value beyond the next year or two yeah. in that. And I, look, I think that article is one hundred percent right. They've overstated, like the media does with most things, the I guess the impact COVID will have on the office market because a lot of business managers are realizing that productivity is down. It was great last year when it was a bit of a change, and then. I think, you know, because I talk to business owners all day, every day. Last year, everyone was saying they loved it. Yeah. You know, it was like a holiday. It was a bit of a change. But we're into 2021 and we're seeing that productivity is down for uh, many businesses and there's a creep back into the market. Mm. It may not recover super quick, but I know Bernard Salt, he's, I can't remember an article when I read it, but he was saying it's going to be up to 95% within a few years' time. So Back to where it was pre Back to where it was. In terms of occupancy. Occupancy. Of so it's yeah. going to be slightly down but it's coming back. And then once these borders and all that open, guess what the government will do? They'll allow immigration to probably start at a higher rate than it was to play a bit of catch up. They're going to let skilled migrants in. You know, They'll have a certain dollar amount in their bank account and they're going to pump the cities back up like they always have. And that's why we haven't had recessions for 30 years until last year because we can create growth through population growth, You know, skilled migrants. So mm-hmm. what's stopping them doing that at a higher level? to fix the budget you know i think there's a lot of triggers here and it's office market is not dead it's just a convenient headline that you know is interesting when you're in the worst case point of time yeah absolutely and and i telegraphing what comes next in this article i i agree with you on and also i'm a big follower of bernard soul a great property demographer things will return back to where it was at a point in time i think fundamentally attitude towards flexible working will always be with us and I think that's a good thing. We've embraced it in our organization. That's cool. But, you know, anecdotally, we're seeing a whole bunch of people now wanting to be back in the office. You know, because they come to work, there's energy, there's people, there's personalities, there's, you know, all that stuff that as humans need, right? We're social animals. But I don't think all office markets are created equal and this story continues. But there is evidence and this is to it. The office market is splintering and then there is a flight to quality according to uh Susan Lloyd Hurwitz She's the Mervac Managing Director. Oh, she said vacancy rates in Mervac's office portfolio increased to 4%, but, quote, it's all concentrated in five older-style buildings built in the 1990s. So that suggests to us there's going to be greater purification between buildings and assets that can respond to health, technology, and sustainability floor plate needs. The chasm between office buildings that can respond and buildings that can't is going to open up. She said the industry had to be nimble and prepared to change. We're not going to return, quote, to life before it was before, said. As she said, the trends that are shaping how people want to live, where they want to work, how they want to work, all those trends are accelerating massively. As an industry, we have to respond to them. To your point, immigration also needed to be reviewed when safe, she said, because the cost of zero migration is $8 billion bucks a year to the economy. We run the danger of becoming a hermit nation. There we go. Wow. I think we've got better commentary than most of these. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind the Hermit Nation stuff, but yeah. as an article, that's sort of expectation. You expect people to be talking this way, right? Yeah, exactly. And look, the Hermit Nation thing is, you know, deglobalization effectively, and it's happening all over the world. You know, the US has, you know, tariffs between countries and all that, like there's trade wars and all that kind of stuff is uh, – Bit of um, you know, that protectionism society, and that is probably going to be taken like a little longer to water out in the economy. But 
yeah, like I said, these borders and everything will open at some point and that's where I think will be a slow road back to normality and, you know, office market will recover. It's just not going to happen overnight. No, it's not. And let's shift, Scott, to another story. This is in the age, which is the paper for Victoria, uh, Melbourne. A piece here, uh, investors wait to pounce on Melbourne offices caught in a COVID crunch. So a lot of people will have done well investing during COVID-19 environment as everyone sort of shifted away from these type of assets. So the smart money, if you're smart and very strategic, is in potentially reading the tea leaves and working out what's going to happen into the future. And that's where the big people make the big dollars, right? So this story here is from Simon Johansson. Um, he writes, a $1.5 billion property fund is waiting to pounce on distressed buildings as a COVID-19 crunch further disrupts Melbourne commercial property market emptying office towers, uh, the seismic shift in workplace attitude caused by the pandemic is promoting big corporations, which cannot break long-term leases on before the pandemic, to flood subleasing markets with excess unwanted office floors because staff are working from home. Between June and December last year, the amount of available sublease space in the CBD roared 186% to 182,000 square metres, a figure three times the normal annual average commercial real estate agency CRB. CBRE estimated. This is big end of town and also um, out in the burbs as well where there's commercial office space. Same thing happened, right? There's People are always going to try and get a return on their buck. And if you're locked into a lease with a whole bunch of floor space, you're going to sublet it out. What's your views towards subletting as a uh, commercial property investor? Should you empower your tenants to give them that capacity to do it? Yeah, look, as long as you approve the future tenant, I think subletting's good because if your tenant wants out, then you're better off letting someone else who wants your property enter that lease. I know we've subletted before many times and I think it's a way of getting a better long-term tenant, you know, because if your guy or tenant needs a smaller or larger space and they've got five years left on their lease, there's no point, you know, just keeping them there for the sake of it. Allow someone else who likes that space for exactly what it is to take over that lease and it's a win-win. Yeah, it is. And let's continue with this piece, Scott. And along this, are corporate tenants considering shedding office space, including Australian Super, Medibank, AGL, Origin, KPMG, MBM, Cub and Deloitte, two people from prominent commercial property firms who asked not to be identified because it would jeopardise commercial deals, said that's just the tip of the iceberg. One bank would ultimately offload an entire building. Our staff are unlikely returned to National Australia Bank's headquarters, 800 Burke Street, dubbed the Rubik's Cube because of its colourful exterior shape, with the bank sounding out commercial agents to sublease the entire tower. The bank spokesperson said NAB was working through the opportunities. This is for instos who are invested into these office blocks, towers. That's pretty alarming, right? I know. Hence why I can't get my head around it, and that's why we don't invest in it. Because mm. short term, like I said before, how long is this going to last? One, two, three years? There is no real income security if things like this are happening at that level. You know, imagine you own a, you know, five hundred square meter office yourself, and that's your retirement income. Mm. You know, you'd be packing it. Like it's just not. There's better ways to invest. Simple as that. And long term, there will be growth. Long term, there will be someone for that property as long as it's modern enough. Like that was a, a good point that article raised. Like if it's a 1990 or older building and there's these brand new ones going up in town, you're competing against, you know, A-grade stock. That's going to hurt you. So age of a building is a very big factor, mm. you know. Like I'll swing it to a, an example that I have used before, like child cares. If you've got a 30-year-old child care and there's been a brand new one open up in your suburb, that's going to 
really cause you problems because you can't compete with the new stock because parents will send their kids to the, the brand new childcare. Same goes with offices. You pick the best office because it makes your business look better. So, you know, aging stock needs to uh, account for that extra risk and maybe a big reno or rebuild even. Yeah. And to that point, this piece continues. Global consultancy firm ACOM's industry director, Mark Colella, said many large corporates were looking to reduce their real estate by 20 to 30%. Quote, that's quite significant. And this is the point. Over the next 18 months, tenants re-signing leases are likely to gravitate to premium quality buildings, leaving a large tranche of secondary buildings vulnerable. And quote, I honestly think that all the B and C grade buildings are at risk here. If you're an owner of one of those buildings, and if you're not diligent looking at all your options, I think there's going to be a revenue stream that's going to be found wanting at some point over the next couple of years. There are about 466 B, C and D grade buildings in Melbourne CBD. Cashed up property funds such as Paul Higgins, Hamilton, uh, Chase are watching from the sidelines. And we'll get into that in a moment. So this whole idea of a flight to quality in larger assets and grade A assets, those sort of B, Cs and Ds, are often smaller buildings, maybe owned in a different structure. Is there going to be buying opportunities for post people for them for renovation? So it's all about location, obviously, for knockdown, renovation. How's that dynamic going to play out, do you think? Yeah, look, I think you might see some converted to residential as well. Depending on how bad the vacancy rate is, that could be worth money as residential conversions. So, you know, the elevator shaft has long lifespans on it. The concrete around it's good. But, you know, the fit out just needs to be gutted or replaced or uh, exterior needs to be fixed up to modernise it. It doesn't have to go back to office. It could be into resi. It could be into some type of mixed use arrangement. But, yeah, you're going to see a lot of those kind of value add, you know, buy it at the low point, fix it up, you know, in five years' time. It might be a much higher, you know, better market. Like yeah. So there is opportunity there. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of bright people looking at this. And the point being that, and you see this in the commentary now, is that, the attractiveness of living in or close to the CBD may be waning as a result of COVID-19 and people thinking more about, you know, more geographically diverse locations outside of the CBD. So for a sense of Sydney, for example, where we're recording, you know, out towards Penrith or out towards Windsor or out towards Hornsby or, you know, sort of 30, 40 Ks out of the city where you can actually live in a large house and have your life surrounding you within sort of 10 sort of square kilometres, right? So for property investors, commercial investors in that dynamic, rather than considering just CBDs, how do you go about framing an investment strategy for investing in the outer areas of cities? Is that where you'd be punting the best money at the moment? Yeah, I like that stuff as Mm. well. Like, you know, the suburban office mini towers or buildings are very popular at the moment. It's due to uh, you don't have to travel on public transport. You can park in front of your own building and mm. walk upstairs and you're in your own uh, area. It's it's where the people live. People like it. You know, there's just an image thing being in the CBD mm. for many businesses. So that long term will, I think, flow through. But those suburban offices have always done pretty well if it is a decent building in a well-located area and there's enough car parks for it. So you can do very well. You can get slightly higher yields. That's one of the reasons I like it. You know, you go into the city, you pay a premium for it from an investor's point of view. So you almost get the best of both worlds. You get in the suburban areas, you get buildings that they're cheaper, higher yielding, and in general, you get slower moving, more stable businesses. You know, you can mm-hmm. get your medical types or your accountants and lawyers and, you know, they're all in local areas, a lot of these lawyers and accountants and 
physiotherapists and all that kind of stuff. So that represents secure income and good yields and yeah, you, you get more bang for your buck essentially as well. Yeah, and, and you've got to be careful not to be caught up in there's two articles there in the top end of town, right? Like that's only relevant to a handful of property funds and institutional investors talking about sort of the acquisition of office blocks. Uh, and you're going to get some resi property players now looking to convert those BCs and these grades building into uh, residential. But again, that's a bit of a slippery slope because a lot of the capital cities are oversubscribed in apartments now. So, you know, that's a very deliberate strategy. But don't get caught up with with what the top end of town are doing. There's a lot more to it. Obviously, that's what your big sort of broadsheet papers will talk about. But the smart money in many ways for your more um, mum and dad slash sort of sophisticated investors, not your instos, is out in the burbs. So to give some sense at all rather than just the noise of these articles and commentary from people who probably don't invest in commercial property themselves – can you give me some hierarchy, your view, Scott, right now of the different asset classes and how you should be framing your decision-making? We've dominated this chat particularly with office and yep. maybe it's not right. So industrial, office, retail, special use as four pillars of property. What's your number one pick, two, three, and four? Uh, Put so it in order. Number one, industrial. We uh, Last month in February, we bought around about $55 million in property for clients. About 40 of that was industrial. Okay. So we're very heavy in industrial and we specialize in it. It's got the strongest rental market overall. And this is coast to coast, you know, mm. from Perth to Townsville to, you know, Hobart, everywhere. And if you're going to throw a dart on a dartboard, that's where you will feel more comfortable because there's a swell of tenants looking to occupy new spaces. You've got that real good, strong owner-occupier market and investors are seeing it as an easy entry step into commercial now. So historically, people feel comfortable with retail because if you shop at retail, you look at a big box on a highway, you don't get it mm. unless you're in the in the game, but that's changing. So sentiment is improving. So we're seeing capital values increasing. We're seeing a good rental market. It's low maintenance, bigger business in general. Like It's just overall healthy. So I like that for that reason. Mm. So you're going to get good growth, good yields, but it will get to a point where the growth happens so much, the yields get compressed. So there is a window of time where that model will work. And as values go up, guess what happens? Their development margins will creep back in mm. and then people start developing. So it's important to buy in areas that are relatively built out so you don't have future supply issues. The next one is suburban neighborhood shopping centers. This is where you can get a number of tenants in one. So you're not exposed to that retail risk we mentioned, like you know, you've got one shoe store that's you know funding your retirement you're going to have a number of them like a hairdresser a pharmacy you might even be lucky enough to have a supermarket in there if you spend enough that overall represents security in covid because there's always some medical in there there's always some food in there and you've got a lot of car spots you don't have a big air conditioned corridor which you know is not good for covid sentiment as well you know you park and walk into the shop you want and leave it's called a convenience mm. center so that's popular and if you can afford that, that's a really good angle to go down. There's a little bit more leasing risk in that. So if you lost a tenant, there's generally not as many waiting to line up. So you just got to be confident in the businesses at hand in there. But because it's spread over a number of tenants, it's very popular at the moment. Office, like we've covered that quite well. We're not really into that because there's a bit of short-term leasing risk. However, if you go into the suburbs and get the right business, you're going to get a pretty good price for it. So it is worth looking at that. you just got to be careful about the releasing risk as well. Specialty, 
I'm seeing huge amounts of service stations and childcares on the market. I've never seen so many. Mm. It's like we all know what's going to happen to service stations one day. I don't really understand why people would want to drop $5 million into something like that and cop a very low yield. So there's a future you know, specialty use risk with that because if it's not going to work as a servo service station in 10 years' time, what's it going to be? It's a, you're going to have to dig those oil tanks out and reposition it. Yeah. You know, it's a good site, big site, but then what are you going to build on it? Like it's generally not in a very aesthetically pleasing area as well. So there's risk with that. Childcare, same thing. There's just probably too many of them getting built in, in many areas. The business model is really, I guess, influenced by what the government's latest grant is for childcare. So if they cut back funding for that, then many of those businesses will fail. So that's why we don't do a lot of specialty type stuff because you want the relatability. So I'm seeing slower growth for those types of assets moving forward. Yeah, better growth for things like those, you know, industrial convenience level type retail, and office will make a comeback at some point, but it's probably a few years away. And what's the dynamics right now about buying commercial real estate? Are agents receptive to your phone calls right now, or you're chasing them like a dog because there's so many people out there in this market right now, and and supply and demand sort of equation like we're seeing in residential. What's it like out there? Demand is far outstripping supply. So it is hard securing properties. Like it's multiple uh, office situation in many properties. So we heavily rely on off-market transactions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, look, it's a seller's market because there is very little out there selling good quality stuff. So, yeah. But I think that's the market you want to buy into because if it's too easy, then you're not going to get growth or if no one else wants it, why do you want it? You know, yeah. That's the, the oldest purchasing mentality in the book so everyone wants this stuff at the moment if it's got a good tenant and a good yield so that means in 12 months time it's probably going to be worth more than you paid for Mm. you know that's growth win-win so you enjoying at the moment commercial property yeah Yeah. so tough tough long hours but uh i find a lot more interesting than Mm. what you know residential just because every property is different so it's it's a fresh way of investing that is always different and that's for me that's why there's longevity in it Mm. Buying four-bedroom houses is great. It's an entry level. You can do very well out of it. But as a buyer's agent, you don't want to do that thousands of times because mm. you feel like you're on an assembly line then. Uh, can you give me some sense, Scott, and I'll close with this question, conscious of the time. Um, are you getting new to market people calling you guys up saying, I'm traditionally a resi person, but oh, I quite like this commercial stuff. Like, Is there a, a big sparked increase from people looking to use the buyer's agency services of commercial Property buyers? Yeah, look, I think a lot of people get tapped out of residential. So, you know, or they're diversifying. So, commercial is, it's another way of investing where you can still get loans, even if you're uh, hit some walls in, in resi finance. So, mm. the commercial loans are actually a different style of lending. So, that opens up doors. But let's just touch on this because you mentioned beforehand 80% lending. So, how is it different? So, you don't need to go into the depth of, they secure it against the asset itself and the cash flow of the asset, yeah. right? So a lease stock. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can get a loan if you've got the cash deposit just on the property itself. And you don't have to show your 10 other properties or your business income. you just got to, you know, give an overall summary and then show the property. And if it's the right property with a good lease on it, there's your loan. Mm-hmm. So it is easier. And they don't have all the same kind of lending max limits or you know where it just gets very difficult with servicing for residential so it is more business case lending which is i guess more open to interpretation yeah so go and check it out and 
you know, you're happy to chat about those dynamics. People can give you a call. That's cool. Yep. So yeah. understanding lending and the commercial market, that's our bread and butter. It's probably where you need to start, right? Can you actually get money before you start thinking about asset selection? Yeah. And we tell our people that reach out to us, you know, have you spoken to a broker? If you need help talking to a broker, you know, we refer to many different ones because mm. that's your first step. Work out what you can do and then plan from there. Mm. Don't worry about the property you're going to buy. Worry about your lending first. And then once you've got an idea of budget, we can then talk about how much income that'll generate what types of assets you could get mm. the best bang for your dollar at that purchase price and then you just go from there and see what's out there. Cool. How do people get in touch? Just Google rethinkinvesting.com.au. Find we're, you there. We're there. Email, phone. Yep. All or, there. Or their fax machine. We're everywhere <laughs> over the internet. So. <laughs> Good, Scott. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, you know, it goes, we just sort of picked our way through two different articles and to be fair, there was no real Hail Mary in there, was there? It was just more of the the sort of same. So the information is out there. Uh, your job as an investor is the interpretation of that information and how you use it to shape decision-making. So, um, yeah, hopefully that narrative sort of helped a lot. But I think you have to echo Scott's points around, uh, and I agree with him in terms of the uh, viability of those different asset classes. I'd be using it as a bit of a filter for where you should be. At least if you're kicking off, you probably want, much like residential lending, your first investment in commercial is probably the most important one because if you buy the wrong one, you're probably going to not get number two, three, and four. So if you're kicking off, make sure it's a good one. Get in touch with the guys over Rethink. I'm sure they're happy to help you out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time. Until then, bye-bye.